Okay, why don't we go ahead and get started. Uh, thanks for uh, coming to this week's session of the Globalization, Institutions, and Economic Security Workshop Series. As usual, we're grateful to the Mershon Center and the Political Science Department for support. I'm very pleased to welcome Henrik Spreut today. Dr. Spreut is the Norman Dwight Harris Professor of International Relations and Director of the Buffett Center for International and Comparative Studies at Northwestern University. His research intersects comparative politics and IR, which is always something we look for in this uh, speaker series. A uh, common theme in his work is a focus on the formation and disintegration of polities and the rise and demise of sovereignty. Um, in addition to many articles, he is the author of three important books, uh, The Sovereign State and Its Competitors, which came out in 1994, Ending Empire, Contested Sovereignty and Territorial Partition, which came out in 2005, um, and Contracting States, Sovereign Transfers in International Relations, uh, co-authored with Alexander Cooley, which is coming out as we speak, very imminently. Um, he is currently working on, uh, uh, continuing to work on incomplete contracting theory and applying it to diverse issues like decolonization and regional integration. And so this paper is, um, that he's presenting today is part of, um, part of that, that work. So we're looking forward to hearing more about the project and offering our feedback. Henrik? Um, first of all, thank you all for coming. I realize you're at the end of the quarter, just like I am, which means uh, you're at the end of your stamina, usually, at that point. At least I am. Um, so I appreciate you coming, and I also understand this finals week uh, ahead. Particularly, I'd like to thank Alex and Sarah for the generous uh, invitation to come back to Ohio State. Uh, I should say, come back to Ohio State. And it's a little bit of a gestalt uh, crisis going on right now because I hadn't been back at OCU in 26 years. And guess what? Things have changed. The last time I was here in the Mershon Center was this old building, and uh, the person that had asked me down was Chad Alger, who I just spotted down the hall. Uh, and Chad had, had asked me to come down and did a radio talk show about 26 years ago. So it's a bit weird to be back, uh, but also good to be back. So uh, thank you again for the invite. All right, uh, without further ado, since we have a limited amount of time, uh, what I'd like to discuss today, is that loud enough? Can everybody hear me? All right, Although, because I'm going to move around a bit, so I hope this, this mic does the job. Um, I'd like to talk about incomplete contracting uh, theory, as uh, Alex already intimated. Um, I, I, it is part of a forthcoming book, but it's also something that uh, we will keep working on for some time in, in different dimensions, as I already talked about with the graduate students. So I do appreciate your comments. There are um, bits and pieces of the argument that I don't like myself, and I'm still working my way through. And I'm sure I'm going to be picked apart very handily in a few minutes. Uh, so I do appreciate your comments, even though this is part of uh, something that, that's forthcoming. But again, uh, still some work to be done. Um, all right, what will I try to accomplish today? Give you a brief um, picture of the focus of, of, of the overall work. Uh, talk a little bit about the theory of incomplete contracting. That comes about of uh, economics, and we'll transform it into a theory about political science and international relations. Thirdly, um, give you a taxonomy of different governance structures, particularly with regards to regional integration. Talk about a causal model. Fourthly, I'd like to get into the empirical cases of today, uh, basically comparing the EU and NAFTA. Uh, but I should also flag that uh, we're trying to use theory of incomplete contracting in a variety of other cases, post-colonial agreements, natural resource contracts between, let's say, multinationals and states on mineral rights, for example, uh, federalist uh, unions, for example, in former Yugoslavia, um, as well as overseas basing contracts. And finally, then, a few take-home messages. 
All right, so that's the menu for today. All right, first point, and Randy isn't here. Uh, oh, there you are. Okay, sorry, I didn't see you come in. So let me get, you know, why should you care uh, the question out of the way, all right? Preempt, preempt. Preempt the strike, Randy, you know what that is. Anyway. Uh, first of all, what we're trying to do is uh, develop a taxonomy of governance structures. How, you know, how might you organize and, and sort of look at this, this uh, universe of cases in a sort of analytic fashion? Then we'd like to explain uh, the choices for certain governance structures. And most importantly, and that's where I think much of the meat of the argument goes, is in this point 2B, looking at the consequences of institutional choices. And the argument is going to be that the foundational agreements in the EU and NAFTA, uh, going back to the 1950s in the European case, and more recently in the 1980s in the NAFTA case, uh, determined the subsequent development of these regional organizations. So that's where I'd like to go, all right? Okay, so what question, why, why should you care about incomplete contracting, uh, sort of these hybrid sovereignty arrangements where sovereignty doesn't get fully allocated to one state but is actually partitioned out over two or more actors? Why should you care about this? Uh, well, in some of the other cases we look at, for example, uh, former colonial agreements, you'll see that uh, rarely did metropoles pull out of colonies altogether. They maintain overseas bases, right? Even after eight years of war in Algeria, France still claimed uh, an overseas, a major overseas base in Mas el Kabir for another 15 years, claimed to have special access to oil and gas resources in Algeria. So some of these hybrid sovereignty arrangements uh, become key components of territorial settlements, all right? And you see this, again, uh, for example, in the French-Algerian case, in the Avian Accords, where... Uh, they have to negotiate what parts of sovereignty get uh, allocated to this new independent Algeria and what still uh, retains uh, some French influence. Secondly, um, just using the quote by Andy Morassic, it allows you to hold over complicated issues, right? Rather than try to settle everything ex ante, you set an institutional uh, arrangement in place that allows you to come to a framework agreement and hold over details for later. Okay, and that allows you to make some deals that you otherwise might not be able to conclude. Third, and this is uh, you know, the, the part of the story most relevant for today, I'm going to argue that if you understand the EU as an incomplete contract uh, with supranational delegation, you get a sense of, of how you get further development in the European Union, why you get a built-in dynamism in European integration that's lacking in the North American agreement. All right? So you get a different perspective on how regional arrangements work, why one has emerged uh, as, as a almost supranational entity and the other one has not, remains very much an intergovernmental contract. Fourthly, um, it sheds light on how international institutions work and particularly the role of courts in the process. And as I just told some of the grad students, um, uh, some of this might have gone back to my, my old intuitions um, when I was still in law school back in the Netherlands uh, when I was studying the American court system, and flabbergasted how you could have a Marbury versus Madison decision where the Supreme Court basically invents its own competence, right? Really defines its own authority. And I was always concerned, about, well, how can you really do that? Why does it stick? Or what the Germans call a question of competence, competence, right? It sounds odd, it's German. But competence, competence. How do you decide who's competent to decide on a particular issue? Who has the authority? Where do you allocate the authority? And it's very strange if the body that, that claims certain authority is allocating authority to itself. So in some ways, uh, we think we get some traction on those kinds of questions. Why, why can courts really expand beyond their original um, functions? All right. Okay, incomplete contracting, relatively brief. 
Uh, I'll refer you to the, the, the far too long paper. I try to cut as much as possible. Apologies. Um, incomplete contracting theory comes out of the realm of economics. Uh, that's where we're going to start, and then we're going to move away from that. But this is the basis. Uh, incomplete contracts are um, uh, agreements that are basic framing contracts, framing agreements where you cannot and do not settle all details in advance. And you do not settle all details in advance for two basic reasons. One is procedural. You simply do not know what the future is going to yield. So um, the contract has to be open-ended. You have to adjust as you go along. It's procedural incompleteness. The second one is strategic incompleteness. Uh, an actor might believe that down the line, they're going to have bargaining advantages or bargaining leverage, so they deliberately want to have the contract open-ended because they believe at time T plus one, whatever you want to call it, uh, in the future, they're going to have a bargaining advantage. All right? So that's how economists think about uh, incomplete contracting. Okay? A few concepts to get out of the way uh, in, in this discussion. We can distinguish a few rights. Control rights, basically ownership rights. You're the owner of a house. Right? Uh, ownership rights. You might also have use rights. If you have a house and uh, let's say there's a pathway going through your garden to the, uh, the forest at the backyard from somebody else and this pathway is allowed uh, to be used by someone else, you have an easement on your property. So the other person who has that easement on your property has use rights. They're allowed to use certain property uh, for a particular function uh, that in some ways impinges on your own ownership rights. Okay, um, And you can think of, of natural resource contracts the same way. You might be the owner of certain natural resources, but you can allocate use rights to, let's say, a foreign multinational who comes in and exploits your mineral rights. Okay, Third one, uh, residual rights of control. What do we mean with that in this uh, argument? Residual rights of control, and this is going to be a key component for the argument, um, basically gives you the rights to determine uh, how to use assets beyond what is initially specified. So new emerging uses of a particular asset. It will also give you the right to allocate rights, as we'll see in the European Union case, to allocate new rights. So residual rights of, of control give you additional use rights, but also additional they say the right to allocate newly emerging rights in the process. So a competence issue again. So the competence, competence uh, the question that I raised earlier. All right. So in this sense, it's, it's particularly important to decide who gets these residual rights because that's going to influence a lot of the bargaining in the future, in, in the future stream of the contract. All right. Okay. That, that's the economic uh, side of things. How do we get from incomplete contracting in economics to uh, political science? Uh, one way to think about this is to uh, I put down a quote here by Johnny Magione. Um, think of it as a framework agreement. Again, you leave a lot of details open for further discussion. Now, Magione is not an, he doesn't look at the story of, of European integration as incomplete contracting, but we think that his uh, particular perspective on European integration comes very close to our own, uh, although uh, Alex Cooley and I uh, take on an incomplete contracting approach. All right? So I would say that the idea of incomplete contracting isn't completely unknown in political science, even though we have only recently taken over this vocabulary. All right? How do you get from incomplete contracting to sovereignty? We see uh, hybrid sovereignty arrangements as incomplete contracts, where sovereignty is continuously renegotiated over time. So going back to this uh, example of, of France and Algeria, Algeria gets ownership rights of a given territory, but allocates use rights over certain territorial military bases, certain use rights of oil and gas, 
uh, use rights also of territories to be used for the French nuclear tests in the late 50s, early 60s in southern Algeria. Um, so certain use rights get farmed out, okay? Um, so in that sense, we believe hybrid sovereignty arrangements are actually incomplete contracts. Sovereignty arrangements are not complete. They are negotiated over time, all right? Uh, I, I know I'm pushing here. I'm pushing the pace. I'm partially trying to get through a bunch of material. Uh, if, if you want to bring Q&A back into it later on, I'll be happy to talk some more about it. So I'm really going to go quickly through Wilsonian, uh, Williamsonian uh, literature here. Uh, those of us unfamiliar with Williamson, in a nutshell, Williamson argues the higher the level of transaction specificity, the higher the frequency of interaction, uh, the greater the degree of vertical integration, right? And this is the, from the business literature, the typical GM-Fisher case, right? GM incorporating Fisher uh, order body because they believe that uh, Fisher could hold up GM's production process. So when you think hold up is, is possible and you're dealing with transaction specificity, you integrate and you have vertical governance, all right? Uh, this moved into political science. I guess you had Jeff Frieden out here last week. Well, Jeff Frieden's I.O. article, 1994, linking Williamsonian transaction specificity to formal empire. If you remember the Frieden piece where Jeff, uh, Jeff Frieden argues that formal empire correlated with transaction specificity. So um, uh, if you look at where the British had their uh, formal empire and where they had their the direct investments in mines, plantations, what have you, those were in places with formal empire. Okay? So people have tried to use Wilsonian theory in uh, political science. Uh, a few uh, critiques of Wilsonian theory, I won't go through all of them. Uh, let me just pick two. Uh, one is the issue of causation. And, uh, and, and uh, Frieden himself admits that he couldn't solve this issue. Um, together with the I.O. piece of 94, there's another piece that's less read in uh, comparative studies of social uh, history uh, where he basically admits that he doesn't have a causal argument because he can see the correlation between the two, but he doesn't know whether um, you first get the fixed investments and then you get these people with fixed investments clamoring for imperial backing and control, or you first get the empire and then you get the investments uh, of a fixed uh, nature, right? So there's a question of causation and causality in the, in the Williamsonian argument. Secondly, of course, this is business and economics, right? And in politics, political elites care about a lot of other things than maximizing economic welfare. They're concerned about giving up sovereign rights. They're concerned about public backlash when you give up sovereign rights to a foreign power. So they're concerned about staying in office and so on. So we start from a Williamsonian perspective, but um, we do that with some caution, uh, full well knowing that uh, you have to be uh, cognizant of the fact that uh, there are uh, areas where uh, the uh, transition works uh, better than in others. Okay? So that, that's sort of the, the framework of incomplete contracting, why we see hybrid sovereignty arrangement as incomplete contracts, and we start from Williamson, but then get into an incomplete contracting approach, which is actually more aligned to Hart, Bankstrom, and some other people, okay? All right. So what are we trying to do then? This, now we're getting into sort of the causal argument. Um, we try to account uh, for uh, the, uh, the choices for governance structures. From the outset, I should say, um, uh, we, we see preferences as being a key causal factor, right? Our model does not claim that um, we can account for preferences. So we, we, there is not a head-on clash here with realists or, or idealists or constructivists. Uh, that's not our point, okay? We, we're fully uh, aware that geopolitical considerations, et cetera, inform institutional choices. We take that for granted. And our, our model does not account for those. 
Here, at best, what we can do is inductive historical tracing of what's going on, all right? So that up front. That's not what we can do in the model. But we do say that preferences, the distribution of power between the relative contracting parties, and the ability to credibly commit to a particular institutional arrangements influence the choice of a governance structure, all right? Thirdly, the institutions downstream influence what actors do. So uh, even though initial preferences aren't formed by institutions, they come from other factors, exogenous factors, uh, institutions, once created, do constrain what actors can do. So what I would call uh, institutionalized agency, or what did I say here? <laughs> Rules induce roles, right? Once you have a constitution in place, it does influence how uh, members of Congress behave. So that's all we're saying here, right? This is roughly the causal argument, um, slightly different from in the paper for the careful observer. There's an arrow downward from power distribution to credibility of commitment. Um, okay, so three causal factors that go into a choice for governance structure, preferences, uh, the distribution of power, and the ability to credibly commit. I would like to say that these three factors are unrelated, that you have truly independent variables, but uh, actually I would think that uh, your ability to credibly commit is partially determined by the distribution of power. Uh, your 800-pound gorilla in the room is uh, going to face bigger credible commitment problems than if power is more evenly distributed. So uh, in that sense, I think credibility of commitment can partially be established by independent means, right, by the particular institutions you have on the ground. You're, let's say a democratic regime might be able to more credibly commit. Uh, it might be established by reputational effects. But to some extent also, I think that power distribution affects the ability to credible commit. This then influences uh, choice of governance structures. Then in the second part of the equation, where's my lightsaber here? All right. In the second part of the equation, all right. Haha. All right. See, I'm not Luke Skywalker here. Okay. The, um, so the second part, we're looking at the downstream consequences. We say, well, where does the bargaining leverage reside? Once you have a particular institutional structure, who has the residual rights of control? And if they have those residual rights of control, they would have bargaining leverage. We also suggest that it has consequences for the momentum. Will the uh, incomplete contract tend to unravel or not? How stable is this? Uh, we're not going to look very much at this part of the story for our cases today. It does figure more prominently uh, when we look at these other cases that I mentioned, overseas basing, natural resource agreements. Then in particular we were interested in what is the momentum for unraveling. And here two other variables come into play to influence momentum. The joint production efficiencies, are there continued joint production efficiencies to keep the thing going, uh, or are there alternative contracting parties? Really quick. You know, you think about overseas basing. Are there alternative supplies from overseas bases? If you've been reading the newspapers, how come Kyrgyzstan gives us a very nice deal early on and gradually they ratchet up their demands? Well, that's because the Russians are waiting in the wing to step in just like they did in Uzbekistan. We give something that Uzbeks don't like, right? We give them flack because they're not a democratic regime. We get kicked out. The Russians move in. Ultimate contracting parties, uh, contract breaks down really quick. All right, that said, how it functions in other cases, we're going to look at this particular part, um, causal factors, and uh, how does it affect bargaining leverage down the road. Um, am I going too quick? I feel like I'm going you know, 200 miles an hour. The Ferrari presentation. All right. Uh, I will go relatively quick through the general hypotheses of the model. I just want to sensitize you to how the general model works. Uh, most of the... Uh, Explanatory power today, I think, is going to come from the specific hypotheses, all right? 
So in the general model, uh, we simply conclude, look, if parties can credibly commit to either institutional or reputational means, um, incomplete contracting will be easier. Second um, hypothesis is the more important one for us. Um, who faces particularly the burdens of credible commitment? It is the one who has bargaining leverage in the future, all right? And who has the bargaining leverage in the future is the holder of residual rights. And again, residual rights were the power to determine future use of assets as well as the power to determine future allocation of newly emerging rights, okay? So, as I already intimated, then the bargaining leverage, time t plus one, goes to the holder of residual rights. So, in a nutshell, you want to be very careful how you design the contract, who gets these future rights of, of determining the use of the asset as well as the, um, <clears throat> the, the rights allocation. Downstream momentum here again, if you just follow my causal argument, you already got it. Um, all other things being equal, actors will want complete contracts, right? You get more information over time, things that you, didn't, uh, you couldn't figure out initially and thus you went into an incomplete contract more information, greater clarity, all other things being equal, many contracts trend towards um, completeness. Um, when do incomplete contracts continue, as I already suggested, uh, if there are continued joint gains and there are few alternate contracting parties, all right? Again, this is sort of the general model, and then we'll get into the specifics with regional integration, okay? So now into the empirical part of the story. Um, we're going to identify basically two modalities of integration. Uh, really quick about the methodology that we're trying to do here. It is a small n comparison, obviously. Uh, we're looking at uh, a method using process tracing, analytic narratives like Bates and Levy and others, uh, thinking about strategic choices made by individuals at given points in time, trying to trace them. Uh, we have variation, we would argue, on the dependent variable in a diachronic sense process tracing over time, also in a synchronic comparison where the EU and NAFTA look quite different, so we have variation on a dependent variable there, okay? Um, this is perhaps best, you know, if you have the paper, uh, this is one of the figures at the end uh, where we say that one way of setting up the taxonomy is to think of two dimensions uh, of, of state options. And states have options either to farm out authority to a third party, a supranational authority, or to keep it as an intergovernmental contract, a simple agreement between states, a very prevalent form, right? Where states maintain residual rights of control. So in an intergovernmental contract, the residual rights remain with states. They don't give anything up. They want to have control to determine what's happening in the future, okay? Um, second point, the second dimension in which contracts can um, vary. Contracts can be complete or incomplete, Complete contracts specify everything ex ante, great level of detail, and um, <clears throat> uh, incomplete contracts leave many of the details over. So if you had these two dimensions, um, you can have a variety of organizations that would fit uh, in, uh, in this uh, framework. We'll pick two, uh, intergovernmental complete contracting, which I argue uh, is, is the case of NAFTA, which is an agreement between states with lots of detail settled up front, NAFTA is a far more elaborate treaty than uh, the, uh, the foundational agreements of the EEC, which are basically framework agreements with everything else, m much of the, uh, of the work to be done in the future. So supranational incomplete contracting in the EEC case, in, in intergovernmental complete contracting in the NAFTA case. All right. The more specific hypothesis on regional integration for us then. Looking back at the three calls of variables, right? Preferences, 
with which we mean particularly demand symmetry, uh, power distributions, and the ability to credibly commit. Those are the three causal variables. So how do they come into play in regional integration? If power is asymmetric, uh, weak states will be uh, apprehensive of getting into an incomplete contract, right? You, you don't want to hold details over for the future because you fear that in the future the more powerful state is going to take advantage of you. So um, if you're Mexico and you're contracting with the Americans, why would you believe that the Americans will adhere to a term of a deal three, four years from now, right? Because they're more powerful. They can walk away from a deal if they want to. Um, so you want a complete contract uh, unless, unless the strongest states are willing to self-bind and bring in a third party, a supranational authority, who can act as arbitrator, all right? Well, in this context, the, the stronger state has sort of the opposite, right? If you are the United States, why would you farm out your authority to a supranational entity that might override American interests? So you're apprehensive of, of uh, giving up supranational authority. You, by contrast, would like an incomplete contract. If it's open-ended and you think you have bargaining powers over time simply because you're the stronger actor, then that's the kind of contract you would like. All right? Oh. Okay, how does demand symmetry come into play? Right? The actor who has a high demand for integration is in a weaker bargaining position. So, talking about the NAFTA case or the free trade agreement in 87, if Canada comes to the United States and 80% of Canadian exports go to the United States, then the United States has bargaining leverage over Canada. Canada needs the deal more than the United States. Right? So in that sense, what we call uh, preference intensity diverges an asymmetry of demand. And the one with low demand intensity, uh, I, that is the one who needs to deal less, is bargaining leverage over the one with a higher demand intensity. Okay? So when you have both, um, and we say that both are necessary, neither one sufficient, um, then you, you have a greater likelihood of, of credible commitment. Okay? Uh, i.e., going back to, for a minute to the example of power differentials, if power differentials, differentials are modest, there's a great likelihood that you believe that the institution that you create will actually bind the stronger state. Okay? I'll give you some examples of how we think it played out in regional integration. All right. Credibility of commitment issue, this is one that we've already flagged in the general model, reappears here in the specific model. Um, the credibility of commitment really uh, goes to uh, the more powerful states, right? So they have to credibly self-bind, and one way of doing so is a supranational transfer of authority. Okay? And as you'll, if you already synthesize this, then, then you understand where we're going to differ from some of these arguments that um, there is no su real supranationality and states can always walk away from it. I, I've never understood that part of the argument. If you, if you go back to Joe Greco's story where uh, institutions don't really bind actors, and yet... Um, Germany is binding itself through international institutions. It seems to me that realists can't have it both ways, right? Either international institutions don't matter, John Mersheimer's story, uh, or they do matter and they matter in a consequential way because they do that, in fact, really do bind the actors, okay? All right, short of self-binding mechanisms, that is to say, uh, if, if the greater states, the more powerful states, don't want to bind themselves, what will we see? We will see complete contracts into governmental agreements because the smaller states will be unwilling assigned to open-ended contracts where the strongest state can take advantage of them in the future, okay? So summary, I think you can read, <coughs> read through this yourself, right? How do demand symmetry and, and power come into play? Uh, they will affect the willingness and, and ability of the strongest states to credibly uh, self-bind, right? Power and demand symmetry, ability to credibly commit, will lead to institutional designs um, supranational authority and incomplete contracting. 
So if they were relatively equal in power and have a somewhat symmetric demand intensity, so they both need it, then there's a greater ability of the stronger states to self-bind. So Germany can more credibly self-bind than the United States. Right? That, in turn, then, will uh, give greater credence to a supranational authority delegation and uh, will be uh, able to go to incomplete contracts because now there will be a guarantee for the smaller states that the greater states, the more powerful states, can't take advantage of them in the future. All right? Asymmetric uh, demand and asymmetric um, uh, power uh, I just had to change that. I had a typo. I don't know if you saw me coming in. But um, asymmetric demand, asymmetric power, influence the willingness and ability of strong states to self-bind, right? So the United States, uh, again, using that example, uh, has, has less capability of self-binding because it's just less plausible and less credible that the U.S. is really going to be bound by institutional arrangements because the relative distributions of power are so dramatically larger in the uh, North American case than in the European case. So a consequence, what you're going to see here is you're not going to see supranational delegation. The strong state will not do it anyway. And uh, therefore, the smaller states will be apprehensive of signing an open-ended agreement. Everything in NAFTA has to be negotiated up front. So you get this very long treaty uh, you know, discussing uh, you know, what, how we're going to deal with uh, orange growers in Florida and what have you. Okay? Unlike the European <laughs> treaty, which is, no, the EC treaty is pretty short, pretty open-ended. Okay? Um, all right. I'll move towards sort of, you know, some concluding remarks. Uh, I can't, I'm not going to go through the whole story with you about the formation of the EU and, and NAFTA. I think many of us will know the arguments. Uh, what we are going to do is trace, or what we do do in, in the paper and the book, is trace through um, the foundational agreements. And the, and the bottom line point, to understand, we're suggesting that the institutional design at the creation of these regional organizations has dramatically influenced the patterns of regional integration subsequently, okay? That, that's the, you know, one of the take-home messages, all right? Okay, what, what kinds of variation do you see then between the three uh, organizations? You see a dramatic difference in transfer of authority, i.e. the degree of supranationality. You see a dramatic degree of difference between ex post and uh, ex ante legislation. Um, go back to the uh, Abbott piece in I.O. of what, 2001 or so. Uh, clearly, you know, noting these differences between these two, uh, it's not Ken Abbott, it's his brother. I can't mention, his, forget his first name, but it's, it's the Abbott piece. Anyway, uh, and then the judicial activism, where you've seen relatively few cases in NAFTA, and they get settled pretty easily, that the judges by and large have not uh, voted uh, based on the national uh, origin, um, as compared to, for example, the European Court of Justice, where you've had thousands of cases, uh, up till about 2001, I think there were less than 100 cases of arbitration in NAFTA, all right? Uh, I haven't looked at the most recent figures, but just to give you a sense of the lack of judicial activism um, in NAFTA compared to the EU, all right? So real quickly again, high degree of transfer of authority in the EU, low degree of transfer of authority in NAFTA, uh, low degree of ex-ante legislation in the EU, high degree of ex-ante legislation in NAFTA. Uh, by the way, th these, these slides are available. Um, I told uh, Carol, Anne, uh, whoever has them, that if anybody wants the slides, I'm happy to share them. Uh, they're on, online here. Uh, no proprietary, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, high degree of judicial activism. And we would actually agree, and this is a quote here by Brunel and Sweet, that um, uh, governments don't really control the legal integration in a determinative sense. That you really have had an expansion of legal authorities within the EU uh, and uh, that cannot easily be reversed. All right? And NAFTA, as I said, ad hoc dispute settlement. All right. 
Um, explaining institutional choices. Here the story uh, is, of course, a very lengthy one. Uh, we full well acknowledge that there are geopolitical calculations, realist calculations, binding Germany, keeping Germany in, keeping the Russians out, keeping the Americans out, too, to some extent, right? Sort of the, the goal, Adenauer, uh, joint fear. I mean, Adenauer less so, of course, but uh, Adenauer also, to some extent, concerned with the United States, particularly after the Suez Crisis in 56, bringing home the message to the Europeans that you've become you know, bit players in the big, big picture. Uh, and I think that's also what changed some of, of Adenauer's calculations. Uh, so you can see some of these calculations all fit into what's happening in the European scene. Um, and again, I, I can't pay more attention to that given the time, but it's a little bit in the paper. Uh, happy to delve more into it if you want. All right? Okay. Point being, uh, how does it work out on the causal model? All right? When you start with the coal and steel community of 1951, what you see is true demand symmetry, that every actor really wants an agreement on coal and steel, that the French need German inputs and vice versa. Uh, they all understand that um, uh, they need to control prices. They're worried about cartel formation in the coal and steel sector. Um, they all understand that coal and steel is a key factor in possible rearmament, so we need to control that. So you have demand symmetry. You also have what we'd say uh, sort of symmetry in power. That even by 1955, the German economy, which is already starting to rev up, is still smaller than the French. So there's sort of a balance of power between the, from an economic sense, the French and the Germans. Italy not to be uh, totally relegated to a third-player status, but you know, certainly important in its own right. Okay. So you have demand symmetry, uh, symmetry uh, in preference structures, demand intensity, um, which leads you to an ability of, of building credible uh, self-binding mechanisms. So already in your coal and steel community, you get a high authority, a supranational high authority, and uh, you get a European court. Um, there are some other institutional safeguards of what I put down here as well, uh, sort of the way the voting system, which would give the three powers, you know, the Benelux countries, uh, some power to uh, check uh, great power uh, uh, demands, but also uh, actually the, the, the real you know, the empirical fact that the, that the three did act together, in fact, were uh, critical in moving the integration process along, for example, in the Messina agreements of 55 that led ultimately to the EC. There's a long quote uh, by Raymond Mikesell, but I, I put it up in its entirety because it's worth looking into. Uh, and basically, this, this is sort of the empirical observation um, that, we, that we would address from the functionist literature, right? That you can't just simply change one thing when, when it comes to coal and steel. If you want to uh, regulate, uh, let's say, coal prices, well, also you have to talk about labor regulations, uh, railway gauges, safety standards, what have you. So looking back at the coal and steel, Mike Sell and others come to the conclusion you can't just do one thing at a time. Just on coal and steel alone, you end up with all kinds of things that have to be settled later on. So his conclusion, his take a message from the coal and steel is we need a quasi-judicial authority with supranational powers. If we're going to make European integration work, we can't do this uh, with ex-ante contracting. All right? So we need supranational and incomplete contracting uh, if we go forward. Okay? So the coal and steel experience, if you will, informs the uh, choice of the EEC to have an incomplete contracting perspective with supranationality. The residual rights, the residual rights determine what has to be done in the future of how we allocate assets, how we allocate future and newly emerging rights has to go to the supranational authority. That, that is maybe the, you know, if, if there is a take-home message, that is perhaps the take-home message, that in the UK's early on, residual rights of control flow towards a third party, towards a supranational institution. 
Okay. The consequence then, consequence, sorry, I'll try to speed things along here towards an end. The consequence, what you, have, what you get in, in, in the EU case is really a self-definition of court uh, authority beyond simply delegation of authority to the court. And that, that's where um, Alex and I had a, a brief chat in the car on the way down. And uh, this is where I think it's not just simply a principal agent problem. That the agent had been given certain powers in the mid-50s, powers that were not initially uh, as expansive uh, as, as they later become. And you see this particularly in 1962, 1963, in the uh, Van Gent and Lowe's case, and uh, in the Coste and case, where the court does nothing, nothing less than redefine Italian legal doctrine. Instead of dualist position having international law on one side and national law on the other side, where national law, um, later national law supersedes international law, the Court of Justice says no. There is a monist system. There's a single integrated system of European law with international law at the pinnacle. And later national law cannot supersede international law. All right? Well, that's difficult for me to construe as simply agent delegation. This is where, the, if it is an agent, it's an agent that's completely defining the game in a completely new manner. So in that sense, um, not just simply uh, principal agent stuff as we go along. All right? Um, it also then uh, differs uh, in interpretations uh, like Jeff Garrett's, where he says, well, you know, the court is simply catering towards state interests. Uh, I'm not saying that the court goes off half-cocked and does whatever it wants. That's not what I'm saying at all. I am saying that it isn't simply an agent that can be yanked back when the principal decides that it has gone too far. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, we come closer to the um, uh, Anne-Marie uh, Burley slaughter um, uh, story and, and Walter uh, Matley's argument, uh, but we don't see it as technocratic slippage. We don't think that the court has simply taken advantage uh, of its expertise or that the commission has taken advantage of its expertise. We think instead that it's the logical solution to incomplete contracts where you have to delegate, where you have to self-bind. If, if, really <coughs> if it really isn't delegation, <coughs> then, then it isn't a credible binding mechanism. Okay? Okay. It's a race, whether your patient wears out quicker than my voice. It's, it's a 50-50 proposition right now. You might be winning. Um, quickly again, um, choices for governance structures uh, in the NAFTA case. Here again, lots of geopolitical concerns, domestic conversions, right? In the Canadian uh, conversion between the Mulroney and Reagan governments, to, you know, less intervention in the Canadian eco economy at this point. Uh, concerns in the United States about the Uruguay round in 86 and possible trade war looming because of the Spanish and Portuguese accession, which violated Article 24 of GATT because it raised tariffs to third parties, uh, or at least were higher uh, barriers to trade, and the United States was concerned about losing a billion-dollar soybean market. So all these concerns kind of pushed the U.S. and the Canadians to talk, right? Domestic convergence, international environment, etc. Similar with the U.S.-Mexico story, um, the La Madrid, Salinas governments uh, started to change from, let's say, more import substitution-oriented policies to more export-oriented ones. Uh, geopolitical changes, of course. Price of oil had you know, topped off at about $40 a barrel in 1980, at least in Rotterdam, and had gradually come down, so the, uh, you know, the Mexican economy was hurting. So all kinds of uh, reasons that propel the actors to choose for certain governance structures. Right. Causal argument, then. Asymmetry in demand, right? Why was the U.S. in the driver's seat? Uh, why was it Canada who came to the United States, who drove North American agreement? 
Well, the U.S. is still, to some extent, playing a multi-regional multi game. They do want Uruguay to succeed. Uh, and yes, it's been stalled in 86, 87, but they do try to push on the agenda further. And it is Canada. Uh, I should have put up a Mexican figure but, um, for later, but uh, just looking at Canada and, and a fortiori for Mexico, 80% uh, of Canadian exports going to the United States uh, gave the United States uh, the, 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 the bargaining advantage, the bargaining leverage. Okay? So it's an asymmetry of demand. Asymmetry of power, just a few figures here. Uh, United States economy, by whatever measure, uh, nine to ten times larger than the Canadian, much larger, of course, again, than the Mexican one. Um, you don't see these differences. As I said, in the 50s, French and German economy about equally strong. Even by the 1990s, after the German you know, economic miracle, Wirtschaftswunder and all that, even then, uh, in the 1990s, Germany accounts for about one-fifth of EC output compared to what you can see for the U.S., 85% of NAFTA. So uh, I would say a dramatic power differential um, leading to what? Um, leading to uh, an unwillingness of the United States to uh, submit to uh, self-binding mechanisms. And even if it had wanted to, it would be less credible because it was simply the 800-pound gorilla on the block and institutional guarantees uh, would only get you so far. All right? So what you get then is a full specification. You have an intergovernmental in, uh, complete contract with all details uh, to be settled up front. All right? So that's, that's sort of the causal logic. Consequences then, and I am going to move towards uh, uh, an end here, uh, the residual rights of control in NAFTA remain with the contracting parties. Okay? There's little progress beyond the initial agreement. Yes, we have later negotiations to add on, et cetera, et cetera, but there's not too much progress beyond the initial terms. Right? Certainly no, no new member states that keep joining, um, <clears throat> although there are discussions. Ad hoc arbitration, as I said earlier. Rival explanations. Uh, the one uh, I think that we targeted most explicitly is the principal agent literature. <coughs> and the, the point that I, uh, I think we're getting at also with, with Majone, I just underlined this here, and again, although he's coming from a different theoretical framework, uh, it gets to the point of residual rights, right? In the European case, the treaties didn't have an explicit allocation of rights. It's an incomplete contract. So it's up to the court then to start allocating who's competent in certain domains. And that's where you get sort of this expansion, this built-in dynamism that we talk about in the paper, that there's a built-in dynamism of um, European institutions to expand beyond their original domain. Now, traditionally, I think a lot of us have thought about this as a bureaucratic issue, right? The commission wants more desks and want bigger budgets and all that. I think that's, that's, that's part of the story, too, sure. But I would argue, Alex would agree, um, that what we see here is an institutional logic at work, that for this contract to work, these institutions have had to take on these roles, right? Um, going out on a limb, we've talked about Murray versus Madison. I think that's, that's a story about the incomplete contract of the U.S. Constitution, right? I think that's an incomplete contract, requiring a Supreme Court to take on these new resources and, and roles to determine how this contract is to be filled out. All right? So final conclusions then. We think the EU project is uh, going to be dynamic. It's going to keep on going. Don't mention the fiscal crisis. Um, I, I think that, that does raise some problems. Uh, but we think there are institutional reasons why actors have a stake in keeping this game going, not just the actors, but the European institutions themselves. Um, and it is the very incompleteness of the contract that drives this process of dynamism. All right? It is a logical consequence of the foundational agreements. That's the point. NAFTA, we would say, uh, is a complete intergovernmental contract, a little dynamism built in. It is a 
an agreement that you keep adhering to and, and keep fulfilling certain terms, but it doesn't have this built-in uh, requirement of further uh, details to be specified, uh, supranational delegation, etc. So, in a nutshell, path-dependent trajectories based on the original foundational agreements. Okay? I'm sorry I went, I told Alec 35 minutes. I lied. My apologies. <laughs>